Anna Chesinski is a British podcaster, television host and television writer. She's one of the regular hosts of the podcast No Such Thing as a Fish. Anna also presented the BBC show No Such Thing as the News, and she writes for the show QI. Now she has written an entertaining book called Everything to Play For, the QI book of sports with James Harkin. Anna, good morning from us. Good evening to you. Yes, good evening. Hi. I've never met an elf until now, and it's a great pleasure to meet an elf. Oh, well, it's it's a great honour to be here. Yes, there are a few of us. We're a very specific kind of elf unrelated to the Christmas elf, the fact-finding QI elves. You, so you're not an elf like Galadriel in Lord of the Rings. You're not elf in safety. You are a particular kind. Stephen Fry, who was in The Hobbit, actually, called you an elf, didn't he? He did. He was the one who initially dubbed us elves. I think some throwaway comment in the early days of QI involved him referring to the elves down at the bottom of his garden who find all his facts for him. And from then on, we we were tarred with that brush or blessed (laughs) with that name. So it lives on. And you are now a book elf. Uh, What's it all about, Elfie? This last elf pun, lowest form of wit, of course. Uh, What's it all about the book? So this, it's called Everything to Play For, and it is a QI take on sport. So I wrote it with my colleague, James Harkin, a fellow elf, and we're both big sports fans, but we're aware that lots of people aren't. And we feel that deep down, everyone on earth should be a fan of sport because it contains in it sort of every fascinating thing about humanity. If you're interested in politics, it's all in sport. If you are if you just want fun, ridiculous stories, it's all in sport. If you want social cultural change, if you want great personalities, everything is there in the world of sport. And I particularly feel, and especially for women um, socially over the years, sport can be a bit of an excluding thing and it shouldn't be. And so we set out to write this book that is as jam-packed with interesting weird information about sport that hopefully would appeal to anyone who thinks they don't care about it. And I believe even if you think you're a huge sports nut, you won't know 99% of the stuff in the book. Yeah, it is jam-packed. It's full of the fun and ridiculous, as you say, but it's also, there's also a lot of scholarship, which I must say impressed me. Can we? Shall we start with the biggest sport on earth, please, Anna, mm-hmm. the, the beautiful game? Right at the start, you mentioned that in the sacred book of one of the Mayan tribes, Lord knows how many years ago, they would try and get rubber balls into an opposing team's net, and that led to a phenomenal contest between humans and gods <laughs> yes absolutely this is our attempt to say that sport almost preceded the universe and this <laughs> is in the popal vu i think it is which is an ancient mesoamerican text and it led to the mesoamerican ball game which a lot of people have heard of but it originates in this story where there's these twins sort of um human twins who have both unpronounceable names. I think it's Hunapu and Zabalanke. Oh, well done. And they they annoy the gods, as humans often did. And I the gods challenge them to a ball game and say this is a match and um this, you know, if you win, then fine, you can have have things your way here on Earth. And if you lose, you're in serious trouble. And the gods rigged it all so that the twins would lose by doing things like um 
think they ended up decapitating one of them, which is a huge advantage in any game of football. <laughs> and somehow the twins pulled it out of the bag and they managed to win by um, reapplying their head for a start and beat the gods. And that's the earliest reference um, that we have to sport in terms of actual time, because this sort of led to the creation of the universe. This is part of their creation story, really. It's a great creation but, yeah, story. I, I was, it is. Uh, The Twins had to first, even before they got to the game, pass through the House of Gloom, the House of Knives, the House of Cold, the House of Jaguars, the House of Bats, and the House of Fire. And I was thinking, people who make games should really plunder Mayan scripture, shouldn't they? It's full of ideas. It's such a good idea. You can really see that being uh, sort of kids challenging... Um, you know, you bring a bunch of yeah. nine-year-olds in, you send them through all those houses, and the one who survived wins um, a Nintendo or something. And I don't know why I thought uh, right off the bat with this uh, account, I don't know why I thought of this, but the ancient Mayans would have looked at contemporary football players earning £8 million a week. Um, I was seeing yesterday John Rahm purportedly offered a billion dollars to play in the in live golf and they'd think it complete insanity as many of us do and perhaps um to uh, adopt a more serious note perhaps emblematic anna of a society in full-throated decline when we pay people this money <laughs> yeah that's very interesting we and we sort of addressed the interlinking of money and capitalism and sport a bit i think one of the interesting things is how much your success as a country in sport depends on how much money you have and how much we slightly ignore that. So particularly in sports like cycling and racing, where it's so dependent on the equipment, you know, I mean, if you look at F1, Formula One, it's really about who can build the best cars. Of course, that's going to be the wealthy countries. In the end, it's often, you know, Western or European or America, North American countries that are dominating those sports. And yeah, it's a, it is a shame uh, that they are, they're intertwined. But I think sports is intertwined with everything, really. Yeah, of course. Which leads me to the question about why so many kings of England tried to ban it. <laughs> That's in your book. And the Chinese tried to ban football later. Why don't rulers of countries realise, like the Romans did, that watching sport lowers the temperature of society and probably in a convenient way? Yes, um, they they blow hot and cold on it. So, I mean, Henry VIII really enjoyed sport and, in fact, owned the first ever pair of football boots that we know of. It's in his um, sort of inventory of his clothes, football boots. But multiple other kings banned it. It's often because it's thought of as a distraction from other sports. And basically what sport was for, for many centuries across the world, was often preparation for war. So in England at the time, then archery was extremely important. And it was thought that this new game of football that seemed to be coming about in, let's say, the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries was distracting people from their archery training. This surprised me. The year 1874, not that long ago, Scotland versus England, passing the mm-hmm. ball, passing the ball was invented, more or less. Indeed. We could argue that Scots actually invented the modern day game of football um, because before that, I mean, for and we're talking about we're talking about soccer here now. That's is that would, would you call it soccer in New Zealand or would you call it football? No, we used to call it soccer. I think we mainly now call it football. You're calling it football. Excellent. Welcome to the party. <laughs> um 
So if you're if you're if you're familiar with the game of football, obviously it requires players in certain positions to keep their positions, to keep a shape and to pass a ball between them. Now, that wasn't always the case up until about the 1870s. People thought the best way of doing it was basically to have one person kind of run with the ball as fast as they could towards the goal and sort of just have loads of other people around them blocking the opposition from getting to them. And they just dribble and dribble and dribble. And it was in a game between Scotland and England around about that time where suddenly the Scottish team had realised that passing might be better and they started kicking the ball to each other. And England were completely vanquished and went away thinking, hey, this passing thing, should we...
in a match I think Chile were playing in some World Cup qualifiers against in the against 80s. Brazil against Brazil yeah yes yes exactly where a flare was thrown onto the pitch and the Chilean player kind of dived towards the flare and there was a bit of a melee and then seemed to be and had a face covered in came out with a face covered in blood and seemed to be that got injured so the match was called off and Chile was the Chileans walked off because they said you know this guy's clutching his face he's been attacked by this person in the crowd <laughs> carried off the pitch and I just love the, the desperation with which they wanted to find out the truth because this was in the days before there were a million people taking photos it was late 80s I think yeah. and there was one journalist who'd been in the crowd with a camera in a position where they said I'm pretty sure I took a bunch of photos at exactly the time that flare went onto the pitch and I'll know if the flare actually struck him in the face and would have caused that blood and they went and they banged on the door of the one person in town who could develop photo, you know, photos developer in town woke them up it was about 11 p.m by this time and said develop these photos now we've got to know if this injury was faked and indeed it was and the headlines the next day were chili um chili's big big cheetahs Roberto, Roberto Rojas, I think was his name. Yes. And he was a top that was him. He, he yeah. was he was a top player too. The nineteen eighty Moscow Olympics. He certainly was. And it was it was devastating, actually. It's it's so funny, I think sorry, because we, we call the book Everything to Play For because I think partly it's like all the reasons that you play and then obviously partly the seriousness with which people take it and how crucial it seems at this moment. And the fact that Roberto Rojas did this um, it's. I mean, it was a stupid, mad thing to do. And if you listen to interviews with him, it's devastating because it completely ruined him and his career. He yeah. couldn't talk about it for years. And it's funny, these mad sacrifices people make for this pointless game, really. The 1980 Moscow Olympics with the Russian throwers. How were they wind assisted? This was a lovely little story, really. Yes, I think this is under opportunistic cheating where they realised that it was javelin throwers and they realised that if they left the stadium gate open, the wind could get in and give their javelins a little a little nudge. Is that the story you're thinking yeah, of? Yeah, yes. That's, that's the one I particularly enjoyed. I think it was paired up with the story about the... Um, megaphones the starter megaphones in rowing that they used to use back in the 1930s and the megaphones were so huge if you look up pictures it is quite comical and they spread out um and this is the person who's saying you're ready steady go but it's also the same person who calls for false starts but the megaphones were so big they couldn't actually see around them in order to call for a false start which the german and british teams realized and used <laughs> greatly to their advantage <laughs> uh Page 103, uh, <laughs> you use a quote from David Letterman. The Kentucky Derby is coming up. This year, the horses may be subjected to a surprise drug test. Isn't everything a surprise to a horse, though? Which I thought was funny. Uh, you, I'm not going to talk a lot about drugs, but you have a lot about cheating uh, with drugs as well. Uh, forgive me if I, we probably all know the sort of slightly sad stories, but there are some, you know, quite interesting ones as well. Uh, the laws, mm -hmm. the laws of golf, Anna, were laid down mm -hmm. in Scotland, but the game is actually a lot more royal and ancient than that, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And this is another one where 
it, golf seems to have been invented, sure, in Scotland, but also in China a long time before that. And it's because we have these paintings, these Chinese paintings of women, in fact, playing, and they're about 500 years old, of women playing a game that is exactly like golf. It's that with the same shaped sticks, they've got caddies behind them carrying their bags. It's knocking balls into a hole. Um, you, it's, it's pretty much exactly the same system. It seemed to be played a lot by women as well as men, high class uh, women and men in China. And that was four, four, five hundred years ago. And there's no evidence that any word of that made it to Scotland where 300 years later golf was invented there. So just bizarre coincidence. Yeah, that's a great discovery. It was a lot more like mini golf. I mean, you had very short, incredibly short holes, like three metres. And you yes. had, and you had much longer holes as well. It was a bizarre sort of game. You did. It was played in a slightly smaller area, though. I think I think the longest was about 150 metres, wasn't it, in the Chinese variety? Tug of war, Anna, is in here, and I'm glad it is because didn't it used to be an Olympic sport? And wouldn't it be great to see it back? Imagine China versus the US in a tug of war. I would. Part of me would love to see it come back, and then part of me would be absolutely terrified because it's it's extraordinarily dangerous. I, this is one of the things I was most sort of jaw-droppingly astonished to learn, but tug of war can lead to these extreme injuries. And I hope this is not too gruesome to mention, but there was a tug of war game, for instance, played in Taiwan. It was, it was a mass tug of war game. I think there were about 200 people on each side, roughly, and two of the competitors' arms were ripped off. Mm like clean off and the physic and they were successfully sewn back on again so they were rushed hospitals sewn back on but i mean you can see the pictures and it's this immense force that you put in the rope on either side when you've got hundreds of people pulling on either side and yes it was 1997 wasn't it and this force on the rope if the rope snaps if it's not properly made it rebounds And the force has to go somewhere and it goes straight up into the arms of the two people at the front of the row. And yes, tore their arms off, but there are people who've had thumbs lost and, you know, broken fingers. So it's a dangerous game, but also, yeah, I'd go for it at the Olympics again. You try and explain American football, but my eyes glazed over, uh, which they didn't didn't elsewhere in your book. Uh, But by 1905, though, speaking of terrible injuries... I read that mm-hmm. American football had become incredibly violent. And how many players died in one season back in 1905? I think it was about 18 or 19. I think there was almost almost 20, wasn't oh, yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, 18 or 19 players around about that time were being killed. It was Well, it still is a very violent game. And obviously there's a lot, rightly, of tension now on um, concussions in American football, in rugby and in football with headers. And... But back then, it was absolutely brutal, and they did change the rules. In fact, it was Teddy Roosevelt, who I think was a big fan of it, and realised at the time that it was going to stop being popular if it turned out that everyone who played it eventually ended up in hospital or dead. So <laughs> sort of insisted this game has to be reformed, Everything <laughs> it to, was. Everything to play for is the book, uh, the QI book of sports, and Anna Tijinsky is with us. A woman, Clara Bayer, in an era, the late 19th century, when it was thought sport would rob women of their vital energies or whatever. Um, Clara should take a lot of credit for basketball, I think. Yeah. The funny thing about Clara is she invented a sport that you'll all be familiar with now, probably netball. I don't know if that's as commonly played in girls' schools over in New Zealand as oh, it is yes. here. Is yes. that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and she sort of invented it by accident because she, as you say, she sort of wanted to prevent or fight this movement, which was overwhelming at the end of the 19th century. As women were starting to, as feminism was becoming more strident, women were starting to become more independent and they were starting to want to play sports. There was this pushback from the medical community and politicians saying it's actually dangerous for women to play sport. You know, their uteruses will fall out. It'll make it turn their faces all hideous. They'll almost become men and stop being able to have children. And so Clara, Clara Bear was trying to counteract this. And she was a teacher, I think. And she found the rule book of the newly invented basketball, been invented by a man called James Naismith. And she slightly misunderstood. And she thought when he drew out the court and drew the lines on the court, she thought that meant that certain players couldn't go beyond those lines. Of course, in basketball, anyone can go anywhere. So she came up with netball accidentally, which dictates, of course, that if you're a goalkeeper, you can't go beyond that first line of the first third. If you're wing defence, let's say, you can only go, go in two thirds of the court. And so netball was invented. But yeah, she spread it through girls' schools, through the land, made it to America and then made it made it down under. So thank you to her. And a lot of pioneering women actually in this book, I think, who lacrosse was a kind of a similar story, taking this, what was the Native American sport of lacrosse and slightly adapting it to be a very popular women's game in Britain. And um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the pushback always from minorities who the authorities would attempt to exclude from sport, always successful in the end, because the desire to play that everyone shares, I think, always overwhelmed the desire to stop people from playing. Yeah, which is lovely. But the account of the first game that she organised, uh, the women grew bitter and lost control. They became loud-voiced and bold. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. Yes, indeed. Look, who hasn't done that on the in the occasional slightly um, hot-headed football or netball game? <laughs> women who walked in the 1870s were called pedestrians. Isn't that charming? Uh, Annie, Annie Londonderry is one of my faves in your book, The Circumcycler. What a saga. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad she's one of your favourites. She's one of my absolute heroes. Annie Londonderry, the second person ever to cycle around the world and the first woman to do so. And this was in the 1890s. And she was a, she was about 22, I think. She was mother of three lived i believe in i think she was lived in new york and had never ridden a bike before didn't know how to ride a bike suddenly thought i'm going to ride around the world and i mean god knows what her husband and children thought when she announced this but she was such a character and she had such an eye for a good story that she got press attention wherever she went uh we don't know how much of what she says is true we have the evidence that she cycled although it did involve her catching quite a few boats along the way with her bike but she said she was kidnapped in the sino-japanese war she said she met all sorts of famous cowboys at the time <laughs> she came up with all these uh, adventures that she shared with the press and she did indeed successfully cycle around the world yeah it's an amazing story it is an amazing story she died in obscurity how unfair how unfair that always is you say she should have yeah. been a new zealander because she would have been in a country which was more emancipated at the time uh Shooters. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Shooters until quite recent times were allowed to drink alcohol before an event to steady their, their nerves. That's <laughs> that seems quite reasonable. Uh until yeah. until what happened to a bloke named Herbert Poltzhuber. 
Uh, I think I think was that the guy who had so the, yeah this is in the pentathlon which obviously involves shooting as part of it and drinking a little bit of alcohol can indeed improve your game because it has as you know if you're playing pool in a pub or you're yeah. playing darts a couple of pints down you're often a little bit better <laughs> same kind of thing you're a bit more relaxed you know the, those nerves go and so people almost always did have a couple of shots before a match. And I think Herbert took it a bit far. He drank about <laughs> 10 beers. He was an Austrian, drank about 10 beers and fired all his bullets into the ground, I believe, and then collapsed. And I think the organisers thought, let's start banning this. I'm not sure that's particularly safe, people with um, loaded guns. I think Fair in, I think into the ground was a slight... Oh, it may have been right. I, I got the impression he was spraying bullets around the place into hay bales and things, but I could be wrong. Um, no, it may well have been a hay bale. It took a few hits, yes. The clever Boris Onoschenko, or he should have been named Boris Dishonoschenko, in the mm-hmm. 1976 Olympics. How come we never knew these stories? What did he do? Do you remember? Boris was a fencer, I believe, and this is in the... So there are many ways of cheating and many ways of doping and you get kind of technological doping as well as you know the kind where you're just drinking too much and he had a device implanted in his epee um which so basically the way that it works is that you the way that it works is there's an electric device electronic device in competitors saws which tells you when you've been hit by the other competitor and Boris's sword was registering, you know, countless hits and people couldn't see him striking his his opponent. He was but so fast. The sword was registering it. Yeah, they thought this must be so fast. He must have done it. But actually he'd rigged it and he just coded in. And I think it was a little boy in the audience who sort of said, I think something's wrong here. I really don't think that um, this is actually making contact. And a fencing champion called Mary Glenn Haig, who was in the audience, was also watching and said, you're absolutely right. This looks dodgy strode out and they investigated his equipment and realised it was wired up to register more hits than it was making. Fantastic. Equipment gets a look in in the book. Equipment that has changed sport. David Attenborough changed tennis. Who knew? He did indeed. In fact, he had he was very influential in tennis and in snooker, bizarrely, in Britain. And, in fact, around the world in tennis. Uh, So he was, you obviously know him as talking about animals now, but he was just heavily in the world of TV back in the 1960s, and he was controller of BBC Two, and colour TV was just taking off. And he wanted a sport which would really showcase colour TV, and he settled on tennis, liked the idea of tennis, thought this could be really popular But the balls, uh, which were white at the time, are quite hard to see next to the white lines in colour TV. So there was uh, the International Tennis Federation were tasked with finding a different colour ball. And they experimented with lots of different colours, settled on what we have today, which is optic yellow. And there we go. Thank you to David Attenborough. And again, he also came up with a format, Pop Black, which was a snooker format. Again, snooker suddenly came into its own as a televisual sport once colour TV was a thing. Before that, it was on telly, but you always had quite amusing commentary like, you know, the pink ball there is sitting next to the brown and he's just (laughs) struck. That's the green ball over there. He's just struck. So (laughs) needed the commentary. (laughs) 
There's nothing that man couldn't do. There's quite a lot. Just a few more things. I won't keep you all night, but there's quite a lot about endurance sports. When Benoit Lecomte swam the Atlantic only only 3,700 miles, so, you know, not much, he was surrounded by a shark-repelling electromagnetic bubble. But even so, a blue shark followed him for five days. That would get on your nerves a bit, wouldn't it, when that happened? I think it would. Yes, it would probably go from being terrifying to just quite annoying by day five. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, Lecomte is actually, I'm not sure we included this, but he's quite controversial. It's so funny when you get deep into all these worlds, the world of transatlantic swimming records. There's so much um, competitiveness and often mutual antipathy. And there's a question mark over whether his attempt counts because he actually did take a pause halfway through, went to the Azores to have a rest because he was becoming very distressed and then had a boat taken back to exactly where he'd started popped back in the water and completed the swim and i think he he sort of pulled himself out of the water at the other end and said never again and then he tried to swim across the pacific a few years later so (laughs) these people don't learn they don't learn matthew webb was the first person to swim the english channel this is a sad story why did he die under niagara falls um this uh, this actually sort of goes back to us talking about money early on. I mean, one of the reasons people mm, completed these huge feats of endurance was often just for money. And Matthew Webb was the first person to swim the channel, became very famous for that, and made a career out of doing other swimming feats. And he did some bizarre things. Like I think he made money sometimes just lying in a tank floating on water for hours and hours on end and people would come to watch him. And eventually he said he was going to swim through the whirlpools at the bottom of Niagara Falls and Mm. he was not seen again after Mm. that attempt, very sadly. Very sad. Tour de France cyclists 100 years ago, Lance Armstrong had nothing on these men, rubbing cocaine into your eyeballs and chloroform into your gums. And the itching powder, itching powder in fellow contestants' clothes. What a brainwave from Maurice Guerin, I think, did that. Yeah, it's it's an absolute hotbed of sort of mutual... Um, cheating and then jeopardizing each other's chances the tour de france in the early days it's really fun to read about but yeah i think i think um garin also used to put nails or broken glass on the roads in front of his opponent so that the wheels would obviously be damaged and yep itching powder in their clothes well done very innovative i think he was (laughs) disqualified in fact he was one of the people who in one of the first tour de france's was disqualified for cheating he and he won and the people who came second third and fourth were also disqualified for cheating in various ways so the the winning you know the title actually went to the person who became who came fifth who finished three hours later <laughs> who came 19th <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. the most dangerous sports still extant death diving in norway which is pretty much as it sounds except you have to maintain a belly flop position for 30 meters vertically before you hit the water in a way that won't kill you is that right have i got that right yeah absolutely oh god yeah that's that's absolutely right you've got to love them the death divers dirdzing um good old norwegians in fact all of scandinavia is great for kind of death defying mad sports there's another one where uh, they've actually turned into a sport going on a swing. You know, when you're a kid and you're on a swing and you really want to go over the top. Yeah, that is actually a thing. Um, mm. Swinging over the top is now a sport in. I think it's either Norway or Sweden. Oh no, it's, I think it's Estonians. It is Estonia. Um, yes, I, do, do swinging over yeah. the top. Yeah. And at, at the end of the book, uh, just finally, things we do that 
we may not realise our sports. Pillow fighting, seesawing, keeping a balloon in the air, and many, many of us have done that with our families. Uh, keeping a balloon in the air, that's actually, I'd love to see that at the Olympics, or it might be a bit slow. It's so fun to watch. No, the Balloon World Cup, do, if if listeners haven't seen footage of the Balloon World Cup, it's brilliant. So it was only invented a few years ago. And the idea is just that you compete against an opponent and you're hitting a balloon to each other and you're trying to make the balloon hit the floor before the opponent can get to it. Uh, but you're not allowed to hit the ball down, the balloon down. So it has to go up. But there are all these obstacles all, all over the place. So there's, you know, sofa and a car and various other things you have to <laughs> dive over and squeeze under. And it was invented by Gerard Piquet, who people might have heard of, a footballer who married Shakira. So she was present at the first Balloon World Cup. But uh, yeah, it's very entertaining to watch. And also, bizarrely, for a very brief amount of time, my claim to sporting fame is that I held the Guinness World Record for keeping a balloon in the air for the longest time. Is that that in the book? I didn't see that. It's not in the book, actually. I thought, you know, I wasn't even proud enough of it to squeeze it into the book. Um, but it's we happen to know the editor of Guinness Book of Records, a lot of overlap between what we do. And he said one day, look, we've got this record that exists, but no one's ever tried to break it, to assess it. Do you want to have a go? So it was a bit of a cheat, but we did keep a balloon in the air for about, I think it was about an hour and 40 minutes and then thought, let's go home now, and got the record, got into the book, and I'm pretty sure someone's beaten our record now. I didn't realise I was talking to a world champion. I would have been slightly more formal. No, well, I forgive you. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. A lot of research. I won't even start to ask you about all that. And lovely writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well done, and thank you very much for your time, Anna, talking to us. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Lovely to chat. Anna Chitinsky at 22 minutes to 11, RNZ National Sunday morning. And by way of interesting coincidence, because Anna's book is Everything to Play For, the QI Book of Sports by her and James Harkin. And many moons ago, another Anna and James wrote The Book of Sports. Maybe it was the first ever one. I don't know. By James, the first of England, and his wife, Anna, Queen Anna of Denmark. Hi, Jim. Tug of war only became dangerous when participants began using synthetic ropes, which will stretch and whip when they break. Traditional hemp or sisal, is it sisal? Ropes are safe, says Paul. Thank you, Paul. So that could pop, they could pop it back into the Olympics. Good morning. Back in the 1960s, Marist St. Pat's Wellington had a coach. It was the Jubilee Cup semi-final, and he put 16 players on the field. 16. They were up by quite a few points when someone pointed it out to the ref. Under the rules, they had to carry on, but take the 16th player off. Needless to say, Marist St. Pat's won the game. Regards, Mike Fennessy. Thank you, Mike.